At the intersection of business, technology, and people is Connected Futures, your guide to business success. For Heather McGowan, the future of work is all about learning. Those companies that create learning cultures that support agile, creative, and adaptive thinking will win. Unfortunately, she argues, schools, business leaders, and workers are not doing nearly enough. Too many are locked into a mindset that assumes a four-year degree leads to 30-plus years of doing pretty much the same thing. When the new reality is a digitized marketplace in which change and disruption are constant. Hi, this is Kevin Delaney, executive editor of Connected Futures. Recently, I had the pleasure of chatting with Heather, a thought leader at the intersection of education, technology, and business. We spoke about what business leaders, students, and workers can do to prepare for a future where true value lies in the ability to always be learning. I hope you enjoy the podcast. So thanks again, Heather. Um, it's great to have you here today. In some ways, education hasn't changed all that much since the Industrial Revolution. Are current teaching models, in your view, sufficient for the digital age? And are digital natives, i.e. kids, already ahead of the kinds of learning that are being offered? Uh, first of all, thank you very much for having me. Uh, second, our pleasure. Jump, in, jump right into your first question. Uh, no, our systems of education have not changed very much from uh, the last Industrial Revolution. We're now going into the fourth Industrial Revolution. And the young people today, the digital natives, are ahead of us in some regards because they're fluent with technology, they're fluent with finding information, they're fluent in working with flows of knowledge. So our, our old education system, our current education system, I should say, was really focused on asking you what you wanted to be when you grow up, getting you fixated on that future self such that when you enter higher education, many institutions ask you to declare a major before you've even stepped foot on campus as a student. And then they focus on codifying and transferring predetermined skills and existing knowledge. And we needed that when we massified higher education in response to the last Industrial Revolution. We needed a deployable workforce with set skills that could just go out there and uh, work in what John Hagel refers to as scalable production. Now it's such that technology can do almost anything mentally routine or predictable, such that those stores, stocks of knowledge that once had value are declining in value, and we need people who are more adaptable, agile, nimble, who can work in flows of knowledge. And that's where the digital natives have an advantage because they've grown up with it, and that's where we need to do most of the work, I think. So in some ways, digital technologies are changing the ways in which people learn. And what kind of technologies should be introduced in schools? Well, I think, first of all and foremost, we should be clear that no matter how sophisticated the technology is, it is a tool, and a tool needs a human. So we should start with the human, not the tool. And I think that instead of storing content into humans, now that we can store content and access content into devices, we need to look at what can the human do optimally, what can the technology do to unleash the potential in the human. So rather than what technologies does the human need to learn or what technologies do we need to put in schools, what can technology do and what are humans superior at? Humans are superior at things that are difficult. Uh, judgment, 
how do you, it's hard to, to codify judgment into an algorithm. Um, creativity, communication, empathy, social emotional intelligence, frankly, all the things that we sort of cut out of the schools in, in favor of standardized testing. So we swung one way and we've got to swing back. We do need to integrate digital technologies into the classroom so they're used to working with these technology tools and they're used to working in flows of knowledge, but we've got to start by sort of figuring out what does a human need to do? So. If in the old economy you need you pick the future self and you work towards that future self and we codified and transferred skills into you to create a deployable workforce, that made sense. And now we need people that made sense because you were gonna probably have one, two, three careers in your life, largely in the same industry. Now if you may have upwards of sixteen or seventeen different careers across five different industries, which is the best research I've seen on it, how do you define yourself? How do you pick that future point in space that you want to become? I think it's a return to looking at purpose and passion. So what is it that intrinsically motivates a person? Because if I'm going to have to learn and adapt for the rest of my life, I need to understand what motivates me. So our educational systems need to focus a lot more on inquiry-based learning, project-based learning, helping people uncover what their superpowers are, what their purpose is, what their passion is, how they work on teams. Uh, what role they play on teams, what kind of other humans and technologies they need to augment their gaps and to extend their own human potential. So it's, it's a really a shift in how we think about it. It isn't so much about what tools do we need to push onto the humans. It's really how do we unleash the potential of humanity. It's a, it's a great line you have about kids saying what they want to be when they grow up. Yeah. But it also brings up the question of identity. People's identities are so tied in with how they work, to the point where I think you even pointed out that people's names used to come from, you were a Smith, you know, you were a Cooper, you know, you were a... And so that's really a paradigm shift, isn't it? Yeah, because that you, you, you worked in the same industry or as the, in the same occupation for multiple generations, not that long ago. And now um, a study I recently read, I think it was in Time Magazine, that if you lose your job, it takes you twice as long to recover from that than if you lost your primary relationship. Because in losing your job, you lost your identity. And I was speaking to a, a senior HR manager yesterday at a, a large an international organization, and she was talking about how hard it is to get people to adapt to change. And I said, well, I think one of the reasons is because you've got them so fixed on holding on to that job as part of their identity. When you're asking them to flex and change, it threatens that job. So if we instead could define ourselves by our purpose and our passion and how we express that, so I say the why instead of the what, so get people to focus on the why, they're going to have many what's, help them become much more versed in the how, so why, how, and what, as opposed to what, how, and why. It's really going to be around creating that agile mindset that, that, that you spoke of, isn't it? And uh, how can schools do a better job of that? As, you, as I think you said, college is setting kids up for failure and debt. <laughs> so how can we change that? Yes, because if, you, if you're myopically focused on your first job and they won't let you take anything outside your major, and that job shifts, somebody moves your cheese, you're stuck in a maze at a dead end with a lot of debt. And um, I think that's educational malpractice. I think it needs to start before college. I think it's got to start in the K-12. I think the Montessori's, which push inquiry-based learning and learning more about yourself, have a leg up on it. Um, I think we need to focus much more, uh, much less on standardized testing. I know it has a place in there, and much more on helping people understand their individual capabilities because that's what you're going to continue to develop. And 
we've talked about schools, but how can business leaders create an atmosphere of that learning agility and, and lifelong learning throughout their organizations? A few different ways. Um, one of the things they can do is be intentional about encouraging learning. So learning is not something that takes place down the hall when you go to a, a class after work or a webinar at lunch. Learning is something that happens. It's part of work. It happens throughout the day. So calling it out. Um, the companies that do postmortems after projects and say, what went well? What did we learn? How do we learn? How are we going to do it next time? Is a way of sort of acknowledging that learning takes place because otherwise you're continually making the same mistakes. Organizations that intentionally move people around to positively affect the organization with different types of thinking and different types of learning is another way of doing it. Um, organizations that encourage people to take time within their day to learn. Uh, organizations that encourage people to go out for lunch with people they don't know because there's more smart people outside your company than in it to learn something you may not know about. All of those things because the or companies that are learning companies are the companies that are going to win. And as you say, the technology that's, that's coming in, even beyond what we have now, AI, robot speech recognition, predictive algorithms, quantum computing, some of these things are already here, some of them are right on the horizon. They're going to do so many things better than humans. So the companies as well as the schools are really going to have to focus on those human skills, aren't they? You mentioned creativity, empathy, collaboration. Yeah, if you look back over this, one of the examples I use when I give talks, if you look back over the, the five largest companies, and they're largest by market cap in the U.S., over the last 100 years, 100 years ago, it was all oil and gas, meat companies, steel companies. So it was about extracting value from natural assets. And what did you need to do that? But you needed um, access to capital because our financial infrastructures weren't in place. So if you had access to capital, that's what made you win 100 years ago. 50 years ago, it was all about scalable production of man-made assets. That's why we needed to massify higher education to create a deployable workforce. In order to win in that environment, it was access to technology first and access to an educated workforce or trained workforce second. Now we're looking, you look at the top five companies, it's all digital companies. And it's not about the digital products, it's about their ability to learn and adapt. Everything Amazon sells you is not about selling you that thing, it's about learning about you to sell you the next thing. Everything about the data economy is data in order to learn about you. So the organizations that can be learning and adapting organizations are the ones that are going to win. So that takes, if you take uh, capital, technology, and human ingenuity as the three main components of a, a business, which is how I see it, human ingenuity is the most important thing right now because once technology comes out, it's going to be nearly ubiquitous. So how do you get access to that human ingenuity? How do you nurture that human ingenuity? How do you keep it happy in your business? How do you attract more of it? That's the future of work. So that's why I always say the future of work is learning. Future of work is learning, yeah, yeah. And it, it's also, it also plays into the whole question of talent. In so many industries, particularly technology, there, there's really a war for, for great talent. Yeah. And great talent wants to work in those kinds of environments where they can continue to grow, don't they? Right, because it's no longer about oh, what's your, you know, it, your salary is important, titles and support association with the company is important. It's what am I going to learn here? What am I going to learn? Because your future value is not necessarily just about how much money you make, it's, but it's about what you're going to learn that's going to make you more valuable. And as you say, people will be working for more and more companies throughout their careers. Right. So the more you learn at each stop along the way, the more it's right. going to hold you in good stead in the future, isn't it? Right. So like that old adage, like you wouldn't hire somebody who's bounced around at a lot of companies. When I'm a, I'm a part of a hiring decision, 
if they bring forward somebody who's only been at one company, I'm not interested. I figure they've only had one context, they've only had one culture, hmm. they haven't had to establish new relationships, new cultures, new paradigms, they haven't had to adapt, they haven't had to learn. So the person who's been at four or five different companies or organizations has got, in my opinion, a leg up because they've had to adapt so much. Yeah, the old model of you, you get your four-year degree and you settle in for 30 years. Right. Now it's punching, more like punching the clock. It's gone, isn't it? Yes, and I used some visuals to explain that. So it used to be look like an escalator, and now it looks more, much more like a web that you've got to traverse. And as part of that web, you've got to continually learn and adapt. So that single dose of education cannot be that first 30 year life, especially now that the career arc is probably going to be at least a decade longer. It's an interesting question to me, um, the balance between the responsibility of the individual to stay a lifelong learner and the responsibility of the company to really um, cultivate that, that atmosphere of, of lifelong learners. What, what do you see as the balance between that? How much is it on the individual and how much is it on the company? Ideally, I think it should, should and will be on both right now. Um, all the risk has been pushed from the company to the individual. So think about it. You used to have a pension. Now you have a 401k. So it used to be defined benefit. Now it's defined contribution. Um, there used to be more uh, investment in training and learning. There used to be more assistance with higher education expenses. Now there's less. I think that's got to swing back the other way, but at the same time that the individual doesn't earn their job. I spoke at one very large organization that said one of the things they're trying to crack is because they pretty much only pull from the Ivy League schools. Once people get a job within this organization, people feel like it's their job and they're done. And they need people to understand you got to earn your job every day. So the individual does have to earn their job every day. They have to understand how they create value. They have to understand how the entity itself creates value. So at one time where it was the senior leader who really had to understand the business model and everybody else had to execute, that's a world that's complicated where problems break down into subcomponents. Now we live in a world that's much more dynamic and complex. So every individual has to understand how the entity they work for makes makes money, makes contributes value, and how they personally contribute value. At the same time, the organization can't hire skills because many of the things they're going to be asking people to do have never been done before. So they have to collaborate on learning. But the individual has to understand their purpose and passion, how they create value, how uh, what their superpowers are that they can draw upon, have to be willing to learn. But at the same time, the company has to be there to support them because it's in their best interest. Yeah, we've done some um, some primary research around IT, and it's an interesting area in, in terms of these shifting skill sets. And, you know, one of the things that our research shows in a big way is the importance of skills like business acumen, along with the so-called soft skills. I know you're not overly fond of that phrase, human, human skills, you, you could yeah. call it, um, like creativity, communication, empathy, leadership, some of the things we, we were just talking about. And that's not exactly the traditional picture of an IT worker's skill sets. In some ways, they're stepping out into this new world that you're speaking of. You know, the CIO really needs to support a team that's um, working across the entire organization and communicating in different ways and driving innovation. So do you have any thoughts on how a CIO or an IT worker can prepare for this new world that they're facing? Sure. And I first just want to address the soft skills thing. 
The reason sure. I don't use the word soft skills is because it's gendered. It implies female. It used to be the hard skills, you know, the math and science was male, and the soft skills, the communication and creativity was female. It limits both of us. It limits male and female if we if we assign either one of those to a gender. So which is why I use uniquely human skills because I think it's it's better for all of us. Sure, um, I like the, it. The, the IT worker used to be responsible for the tools, and if the tool is working, the IT person's job was done. I think now we've come to the realization that those tools are only as good as the humans who use them. So you see more of a merger between people in HR working with people in IT because if the people on the human side are not adapting and using those tools, then the IT can't be successful. So for an IT worker, I, I would encourage everybody to understand how business models work. So, And from an educational standpoint, take a class in business models. Take a class in design thinking. It helps you put the user at the center, something that IT has gotten better at but needs to get even even better at. Take a social sciences class, like ethnography. I mean, if you're a student, these are the recommendations I would, I would make. So that you understand, I think that the killer undergraduate degree or the core capabilities of a worker today would be some kind of business around something like business models, some sort of behavior, uh, sociology, ethnography, anthropology, and then some form of technology upon which you can apply that. Because in the future, if you look at it, it's really actually today, Every business is going to be making people adapt to change and use technology tools to create value. So those are the three components that have to come together. And so I think all degrees should have sort of a transdisciplinary mindset. All workers should have a transdisciplinary mindset. And they need to understand business behavior and technology. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I have a CEO friend who has a, um, an undergraduate psychology degree mm -hmm. and, a, and an MBA. Yes. He's, every day he uses the um, psychology degree, but right. the MBA, not so much, although it looks good on his resume. <laughs> I, I have an undergraduate degree in, in uh, industrial design, which is, is kind of the early uh, early word for design thinking, and uh, an MBA in entrepreneurship. So I take that, how do I find value? How do I create, deliver, and scale value? And that's uh, helped me tremendously in looking at the future of work. Yeah, we also, we have research around the future of work and the extent to which knowledge workers expect more flexible work experiences, and also to be freed from many of the, the rote, boring tasks that cut into their creative time. Yeah. And do you think modern companies are doing enough to accommodate them? And in some ways, as you say, that comes down to some of the tools that will free them up from some of these rote tasks. Yeah, I think it comes down to how we measure work. Um, you know, there's a certain percentage of our workforce that's of a generation that if you weren't there, you weren't working. There's another percentage of our workforce which is now becoming the biggest percentage of our workforce, millennials, who say, I'm working even if I'm in shorts and flip-flops at the beach. So what we need to do is figure out how are we measuring work? How do we measure value? It's, it's no more important to see time than learning is to see time. It isn't the hours you log in the week. You know, if it's using that expression, it's not the hour, it's the value you bring to the hour. So until we figure, figure out a better way to measure that value, I think we're going to have that tension. If there's so many ways to, to get into um, this sort of gray area of, of where does creativity come from? And sometimes it's the people you interact with from a completely different discipline. They might, you know, if, if you're a technology person, you're spending time with an artist, you might wind up thinking in a whole different way. And from the old model, maybe that having a drink with an artist might be considered a waste of time. Well, it wasn't in the Renaissance. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So if you look back on when, when we had some of our biggest breakthroughs, it was when we didn't have disciplinary silos. Those are artificial things we created to chunk learning and to manage people in silos. Um, some of the some good advice I had, uh, heard Jeffrey Hoffman speak, he is one of the founders of Priceline, and he does something he calls info sponging. He dedicates 20 minutes of it today or an hour of it today. You, you figure out your time increment. And he goes to learn something he knows nothing about that doesn't have any clear connection to anything he's doing. And then he writes notes about it on sticky notes and keeps keeps them. And then every once in a while, he you know every week, every month, he puts looks at all the sticky notes and tries to find connections between those dots. And those are the kinds of things that lead to breakthroughs because he was looking at um, the sale of fruit and you have five days to sell a banana. And then he was looking at the problem with airlines in that they have uh, excess capacity all the time or did and said, well, if they can tackle this problem with fruit, can't we tackle it with airline seats and use a similar, um, uh, uh, what's it called? Um, auction method to fill the seats, and that's how Priceline emerged. Interesting. Yeah. I'm sure there's a lot of other examples like that. Yeah, info sponging. So, and the other thing is to look at your network. Um, LinkedIn used to have it within their network. Another company called, I think it's Sociolabs, I can send you the link afterwards if it's helpful, will let you do it with your first 500 contracts, is to look at how um, connected and cohesive is your network. Is everybody you know from the same companies, from the same college, from the same region, or from the same culture? Or is your network very diverse, where it's global, different ages, different incomes, different backgrounds, different industries? And how often are you in connection with people who think very differently than you? Because yeah. Sorry, go ahead. And it helps with your learning. I mean, Anne-Marie Slaughter has talked about that in her book, Tribes, you know, the difference between cohesive networks or, and action networks or, or um, bonding networks and bridging networks. It's certainly relevant for an area like technology where I know it's been said a lot of the, the apps and digital solutions that come out of Silicon Valley are sort of designed from the perspective of a 28-year-old male. <laughs> yeah. And um, what are your thoughts on how increasing the diversity in, for example, the technology industry? And a lot of the big technology companies are really making an earnest effort to do this. But what are your thoughts on, on how that will impact innovation moving forward? I think it's incredibly important. There's been enough studies out there that when you have more diversity, whether it be gender, whether it be race, whether it may be sexual orientation, income, what have you, in a company, you have better longevity, better profitability. I have a, a good friend who says when she looks at a company that she's going to work with, she looks at the leadership team, if it's all white males, she says they're not going to make it. Because all they're doing is designing for themselves, and that's a market that's frankly shrinking. So the more diversity you can bring in there, because you can span things from other cultures, from other uh, perspectives they may have. Um, Harvard Business Review did a uh, study on this, that diverse teams are, are more successful at cha addressing complex challenges. So there's enough evidence out there, we just got to get our biases out of the way. And I hope that doesn't take as long as it appears to be taking right now politically. Yeah, and you mentioned design thinking. and, and a big element of that is empathy for the end user, whomever you're, you're designing your, your product, your solution, your app for. And one way to get that is through diversity, isn't it? It is. And, and the other element of design thinking is to not start with having a problem you think you're solving, but having a problem you think you're framing. And understanding framing the problem is 90% is of solving it. So if you've started with a frame of I'm my market and everybody looks like me, and you're just trying to solve that problem, 
you've just excluded probably 70% of the market. If you frame the problem differently with empathy, but also including other users, then you start on the path of solving it with a, probably a larger market share in mind. Any other thoughts on what leaders, whether in business or education, should be doing to smooth our transition into this new era, this, this future of work that's coming at us fairly quickly? Look in unusual places. Look for people with degrees in fields that may seem very different from, you know, the liberal arts to the arts to philosophy to, to music to art design or people without degrees who've managed to survive. I'm always impressed by people who've managed to traverse a complex career who don't have an undergraduate degree. To me, that suggests they have many more skills that we don't have a way of, of you know, codifying or certifying. Um, so look in, in, in obvious places and um, be looking for people who ask you more questions and give, than give you answers. Those are the people who are going to continually open up your frame because whatever business you're in, it's likely to change. So if you look at the from the time somebody looks to hire somebody, and I call that they have a need, to the time they get need relief, depending on the industry, it can be anywhere from three months, six months, 12 months, and, and sometimes in higher ed, it can be 18 months. Chances of that need changing are very high. So if you're focusing on the need you had in mind, instead looking for a cultural fit, somebody with passion and purpose and a lot of inquiry who asks you those interesting questions because they may help you get to the next business model you don't even realize you need to get to yet. Yeah, it's interesting when you when you speak of diversity, it's gender, it's race, it's, it's um, religion, it's culture, but it's also learning styles, isn't it? Neurodiversity for sure, yeah. Neurodiversity, of course, perfect yeah. word, yeah. Yeah, and companies will really need to think in those terms, I think, more often if they want to have a balanced, um, creative team. Yeah, so instead of looking for that applicant who's going to give you the right answer, get that applicant who pushes you back on your heels with questioning the question you asked yourself. That's the person I'd look to hire. This is Kevin Delaney for Connected Futures. My special thanks to Heather McGowan for a great conversation. And here's hoping that your team is learning, adapting, and inventing, and having some fun along the way. Insights, analysis, and the voice of thought leaders, go to the Connected Futures online magazine at connectedfutures.com.